Hey everybody, before getting into this episode of Trap Draw, I just want to quickly mention it is sponsored by Holderness and Born. Been working with them for more than three years now, and they make my favorite polos in the closet. They are phenomenal to wear on the golf course. They're great to wear off the golf course. Please seek them out either in our shop or in your local pro shop. Hopefully they have them, and if they don't, ask the pro. See what you can do about getting them into your shop. I promise you won't regret it. Now, on to the trap draw. Gracias, Mr. Jeezy. Folks, welcome to another edition of the Trap Draw. Today's episode is one I haven't done in a while. It is a follow-up from the May selection for the reading room, and it is a discussion with Alan Chipnuck. We are going to talk about his book that's 20 years old this year called Bud, Sweat, and Tees, A Walk on the Wild Side of the PGA Tour. It chronicles Rich Beam, his caddy Steve Duplantis, and a host of other characters. A lot of you guys, if you're golf fans, I I hope you've read it. I I think you'll find the conversation both illuminating about the book and and also interesting about the context of the book. And if you haven't read it, hopefully we'll spark your interest to go out and seek it and, and give it a read. So, Alan is a guy who really doesn't need any introduction around these parts. He currently writes for Golf.com. That's where you can find most of his week-to-week and and regular stuff. He's also the author of quite a few books, including Swinging from My Heels, Confessions of an LPGA Star, written with Christina Kim. He co-authored the novel The Swinger with Michael Bamberger. He's written about Augusta National and obviously the, the book we're going to talk about today, Bud, Sweat, and Tease, uh, was a national bestseller back in 1999. Alan's one of my very favorite golf writers. I love his wit and humor and a little bit of cynicism. He, he just keeps it very real. Uh, this was a real treat of a conversation to have, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Alan, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for choosing this book. I'm, I'm deeply flattered i did most of the typing on this during the 20th century so it's cool that people are still uh, interested especially a, a discerning reader such as yourself and uh, of course your vast network of uh book club members so i'm i'm delighted to be doing this well thank you that's uh that's very nice of you to say and uh i'm just hoping that we can count our membership on on more than two hands but <laughs> even even if not i'll, I'll take it yeah, I was going to say, so this book is, uh, well, one, it's been one of my favorite golf books. I, I For full disclosure, I, I read it a while ago. And so this time around was just going back through the book and almost rereading, but but more of a skim and, and man, just a lot of the stories and characters, they, they really come flooding back. So this is a big thrill for me to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Well, I was going to say, same for me, because even though I wrote the book, it's been a long time. So I was I was flipping through it myself to refresh my memory on some things. And I have to say, I was kind of impressed. I was like, man, this is kind of fun stuff. You know, I, 
and I, I was in my mid twenties and it was my first book and it was, I won't say it was a lark, but when you, whenever you write your first book, you don't even really know if, if you can do it or if anyone's going to read it or if the publisher's even going to want to print it. So I went into it very much um, innocently and, and just kind of winged it. And, um, but I have to say that even a lot of it still holds up. So it was, it was kind of fun for me as well, just, just to relive some of those things. And of course it brought back the memories of uh, the reporting and, and where we were sitting when someone said this or that, or where I was standing when I observed um, X, Y, and Z. So it's, uh, that's the neat thing about a book is it, it's the snapshot and it, it captures a moment in time. And uh, sometimes, sometimes these things don't hold up. You go back and you read some of your favorite books from, from high school or whatever, and it feels, it feels a little musty and it doesn't speak to you in the same way. And, and sometimes the, the books uh, endure. So it will be a different experience for each reader, but it's kind of fun for you and I, I guess, to, um, to rediscover that this book in some ways. Absolutely. And I want to ask you a lot about, um, the, the process of how the book came to be. But before I do that, I, I assume most people listening to these book club podcasts have read the book, but just in case some folks haven't, I wanted you, I, I want to hear from you. How would you describe Bud Sweat and Tease for folks that may not have read it yet? Well, it's not sanitized tour approved content. And uh, it really is a sort of an intimate portrayal of a player and a caddy and their own unique journeys to the tour and how their lives intersected at a very magical moment and how it all fell apart. And of course the players, Rich Beam, uh, the caddy is the late Steve Duplantis. Both were these outsized colorful characters and in their own way, neither one really belonged on the PGA tour and found each other at a moment of desperation in the 1999 Kemper open beam was, was a, total greenhorn rookie who was in way over his head came in i think 202nd on the money list hadn't made a cut in two months i was already planning on going back to selling stereos or working in a pro shop or some other dead-end job um duplantis had had a long run with jim furick and had recently been fired and because uh he lived a very large life and married a stripper and possibly had a drinking problem and all the things that went with it he found that he was unemployable and his phone never rang until um, until Beam called them up out of the blue. And their first tournament together was the Kemper Open, which uh, in one of the all-time great catting performances, Steve led Rich around like a wet nurse and they somehow won that tournament, um, which remains to this day one of the most unlikely PGA Tour victories ever. Um, and, and then, of course, the things fell apart a few months later because they were too similar and they their energy was too chaotic for them to last. But um, so it's really, in, in, in some ways, it's a joint biography of, the, of these two guys. It's also kind of a, an exploration of life on tour. That's not kind of the, the John Feinstein um, version. And, um, and then it, it's just a, a case study in, in fame, success, uh, and, and how that can all kind of go pear shaped. So, there's kind of a lot going on, even though it's not, it's a rather slender volume. I mean, it, uh, it's less than 300 pages, but there, there's a lot packed into it. And I can say as somebody who appreciates the unsanitized content and word, uh, th this book was such a revelation for me. Um, I know it's been compared to like Ball Four, the, the famous book um, about Major League Baseball. 
And so I just wanted to say it, it hit me at a time I was in my early 20s and, and it just was the perfect book to really jumpstart my, my golf fandom. So I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. I, I wanted to ask you about the genesis of the book, how the idea came to be, how, how did you pitch it originally? And then also, how did you settle on Rich Beam? Were there any other players that that you had considered? Uh, did you have a prior relationship with Rich Beam? I'm, I'm curious about how the book came to be. Yeah, it's interesting. So this was um, this was basically pre-internet. You know, in 1999, um, we had Sports Illustrated had this Golf Plus section that went to its subscribers, and we often had 20 or 25 pages of editorial each week. It was just it was like a magazine within a magazine. And so I went to a lot of tournaments, and I would write little featurettes, or I'd write game stories, and so. It was just a, a dead time in the schedule. I went to the Kemper Open, and it was like, all right, we got to fill four pages. Good luck. <laughs> and, um, I didn't really know what I was going to write about, and um, I just this incredible energy of that victory and Rich's story. I mean, just to give it some context, he had never even played in a Nike Tour event, you know, which is now the Web, uh, let alone a PGA Tour event. Um, before he, he showed up as a rookie, he, he went through all three stages of Q School, which is really hard to do. Uh, you know, he he played at New Mexico State. He was, he was he was not a blue chip college player. He had a very mediocre career. Was was just working in the El Paso Country Club Pro Shop, hanging out, drinking, chasing girls. Um, and but he had a gift, and he also had an interesting mentor in his father, Larry, who was uh, a really gifted player and teacher who tried to play the tour in the '50s and never made it, but kind of fueled some of that energy into his son. So. Um, Rich was just shooting 65 and taking all the members' money, and eventually they they sponsored him to, to make a run through Q School. And I mean, he was he was so clueless. You, you know, he, this is all in the book. But he goes to his first tournament, the Hawaiian Open. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know anybody. Just completely overwhelmed and over his head. And uh, he showed in his play, you know, he was he was he was having an awful rookie season. But um, he found some magic with with Duplantis at the Kemp Open. So I wound up writing a game story for SI. And I'll never forget because at that time my mom was living in Maryland and I, I was I was staying with her. I, I did it at her her kitchen table that Sunday night and the story just poured out of me. I, mean, I wrote 2,000 words in about two hours and um, you know, I'm a West Coast guy. We don't have any bugs out here. You know, I always have my windows open. So I'm, I'm sitting there writing. It's, it's summertime. I crack the, the patio door and my mom comes in. She screams because there must have been 500 bugs on her ceiling around, clustered around the light. It's like the locust had descended. And that's how in the zone I was. I mean, I didn't even notice this. I got mosquitoes buzzing my ear. I had, I had hornets. I had, you know, who knows what. And I was just so into this story and I wrote it. I sent it in. My editor loved it. You know, he told me that was one of one of the best stories he'd seen out of me in a long time, and um, so that was cool. And then Rich decided to go through U.S. Open qualifying, and as we were looking to do a U.S. Open, you know, preview story, and we're looking at the qualifiers, my editor says, "Oh, you got to follow this guy Beam. There's just there's something good there." So I went down to this this qualifier in in Memphis, spent more time with him and, and with Steve Duplantis, the caddy. And I was like, these guys are unbelievable. They were completely uncensored. You know, Steve had this nanny who would basically come right off the pole at some strip club in Dallas. And she was a vision. And uh, Rich was just this fun-loving character. He's drinking beer the night before he's playing this 36-hole qualifier in the, the Memphis heat. And, um, you know, he, he winds up not making it through qualifying. So the story kind of 
just goes away. But uh, so I, I go to Pinehurst. This is '99. I'm having dinner with Michael Bamberger. I know you're a fan of his work, and uh, he's, he's been a he's been a, a guest on this very podcast. And um, Bamberger's a great friend of mine, and he's always been a mentor to me. So we're we're sitting at Outback Steakhouse, you know, where else? And he says, "So what have you been working on?" And so I told him about about this dynamic between Rich and Steve and just these crazy lives they led and how they just gave me total access and candor. And he says, this is a book, man. This, this, this sounds incredible. And he gave me, he scribbled down an address, an email for an editor, Simon Schuster, whom he'd worked with a guy named Jeff Newman, who uh, had done a lot of, a lot of sports books, a lot of golf books, had a great reputation in the industry. And was pretty, you know, he was a heavy hitter and he was the kind of guy who could just green light these, these projects. And, so I kind of let all that marinate. Uh, I reached out to Jeff and I, I told him about these two characters. He said, yeah, this sounds interesting. Why don't you send me a sample chapter? Uh, I said, okay. And that was comfortable because, you know, he said, maybe two or three or 4,000 words. You know, that, to me, that was just a magazine story. I, I knew how to do that. So I, I wound up taking all the material from the Memphis qualifier and from the Kemper Open, shades of that. And I put into this chapter and I sent it to him, and he said, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> and, uh, that became basically the forward to the book, almost unchained. And and so it just kind of went from there. I didn't even have an agent. You know, I was just, just dealing directly with Jeff. Uh, so that it, w- it happened very organically. You know, Bamberger played an important role. And it was just really the energy of that Kemper Open and, and, and these two unusual characters that, that, that launched this whole thing. So I never realized that. I, I had always assumed you had chosen you know a, a rookie to write about it, it almost that, that's very interesting I, I didn't realize it was the win that really touched off the book i had assumed the win was kind of a uh, serendipitous event within the book no not at all and so you know the the book essentially chronicles Rich's rookie year on tour. So everything that before the Kemper Open, I had never met him until the Kemper Open. And I knew who I knew who Stevie was. I'd seen him around, of course, but I'd never really talked to him either. So, you know, I kind of had to recreate everything up to that point through just interviews with those two characters and the people around them. So, and then I started following them, you know, pretty carefully and I would just bird dog them. But it was, yeah, it was, it was not, I did not go into that season looking to write, write a book by any means. It just sort of fell into my lap. And I was going to ask, so uh, obviously after the Kemper Open then, so you embedded with them for, was it, was it quite a while? How much time did you spend out on the road uh, touring with them? Yeah, I mean, it, it it took it was slow rolling process because Kemper was what early May. Michael and I had that t- that talk in mid June. Reached out to to Jeff Newman in probably early July. Spent the sam- you know spent a while putting that sample chapter chapter together. In fact, he called me. I was on a I was on a Ryder Cup shuttle uh, in '99 at Brookline, and he called me to say I, I feel like it was early in the week, and he said. That's when he said, I want to do this book. So by then, the season was already coming to a close. So I really spent a lot of time with them in that off season and into 2000, you know, followed them. By, and by that time, they had, they had already, player caddy relationship had already blown up. So it was, it was an interesting high wire act to tell their story uh, in real time while also trying to recreate everything that led up to it. So it, it was the, the timing. I wish I'd acted sooner and I could have, I could have followed them every step of the way. Um, you know, right after the Kemper, but it, it took a while for the process to play out. That's that's fascinating. Um, and, and I want to get to Duplantis because I think he's, you know, obviously Rich Beam gets the headlines and he's the golfer, but I, but I think 
Steve Duplantis is probably the most interesting character to me. Uh, but before I ask you about him, I, I just wanted to, you mentioned that Beam went through all three stages of Q school that year, uh, or I guess the year prior to his rookie season. That's how he got out on tour. The tour in the last few years has, has changed that where Q school now feeds into the web tour. I, I was going to ask you, how do you like that rule change? And do you think it, it, it prevents us from getting these, you know, they might be once every blue moon, but but they kind of prevent these rich beam type stories uh, from happening. I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there could never be another rich beam because these guys, the, the web tour is really high level golf and it's really an incredible training ground for what you'll see out on tour not only in how things play out between the ropes but everything else the, the logistics moving around the country uh all all of it i mean when anyone anyone who shows up on tour now is is ready to go and even you take a guy like you know matt wolf he's been playing big time golf he, he's played usga events uh he's done he's been through media training and he's uh so he you know he, he could get his card by winning a tournament you know this summer or whatever but he still is so much more prepared than a guy like beam ever could be coming from a very b-list college program never playing usg events never playing any big time junior golf you know he he's really a homegrown homemade talent and so as you say that the structure of the tour has changed and you, you we've lost a little charm with it because there are no more outsiders uh, you have you have varying degrees of insiders, but there just can never be another Rich Beam because of the way everything's changed. Uh, well, let's talk about let's talk about Rich and Steve Duplantis. I was hoping as briefly as as you can, without you know going into the full story. That's what the book's for. But can you highlight how they found each other? Yeah, well, it was just utter desperation. I mean, they had early in the early in the '99 season when when Steve was still on Furyk's bag, they they had crossed paths during a practice round, and Steve had said basically one nice thing to to beam about his game and that meant so much to rich because he was just floundering and and i remember i asked steve about it and he's like i don't even remember that kid you know he's just another nameless faceless little guy just being polite but um you know rich rich held on to it and he didn't have a caddy you know he was basically picking up guys in the parking lot or or drafting friends or call you know college buddies and that, that was another way he was at such a disadvantage you know he was he didn't know the golf courses his caddies didn't know the golf courses. And so uh, he was really struggling. And then, you know, Steve gets, gets fired by Jim Furyk after, you know, basically missing the first round at Bay Hill, which he claimed was, was a traffic related. I mean, who knows? He, he was a guy who burned the candle at both ends um, to say the least. And so um, he expected because, they, you know, Furyk had been the top of the money list for years and he's playing Ryder cups. And, you know, Steve thought he'd pick up another big time bag right away. And it just didn't happen. His phone never rang. I mean, his, his nickname on tour was asbestos because he was, he couldn't be fired. He was fireproof because no matter how much he screwed up and how many times he was late, uh, because him and Furyk had come up together and they'd shared, they'd been roommates on the road and they had all this excess. Furyk just couldn't let go of them. Uh, is, which is interesting because he's such a fastidious, perstickety kind of personality, but eventually he'd had enough and Steve was out and, and, and Rich in utter desperation rings him up. And because Steve had no other options, he said, yes. Uh, so it was really they were they were both so desperate, and that's what added so much energy to that that pair between the ropes. Is they were both kind of fighting for their professional lives, and Steve was so invested in Rich's success. And if you go back and watch, you know, there's stuff on YouTube and elsewhere. If you if you go back and watch, I mean, you've never seen a caddy ride his player like this. I mean, he is in Rich's face 
on every shot and he he's practically guiding him by the shoulders it, it's just it was it was over the top but it was what what, be, what you know what the beamer needed and it was a sort of validation that, that steve did have some caddy bona fides it wasn't just Furyk doing everything out there and it's really an all-time performance of just alchemy you know it was there was something magic happened that week it was it was not sustainable but you know for four rounds that they found it and it changed both of their lives really uh, shortly after Beam's initial win at the Kemper Open, their relationship starts to sour. Uh, and, and of course, with hindsight, we know Rich went on to win the International a couple years later and, of course, is most famous for winning the PGA Championship. I was just curious, do you think those two, do, do you think Beam could have ever become a major champion with Steve on the bag? Or do you think that breakup was was best for for both of them? It's an interesting question. I mean, certainly Steve was the best caddy he ever had, but I, I think it, it was too much for it. He, he needed to find himself as a player and he was still searching, you know, when he was a rookie and, you, you know, project forward four years when three years when he wins the PGA Championship. It's, I don't think you can beat Tiger Woods if you're not in control of your own instrument. And so I think the answer is probably no, because it was such, the dynamic had been already set where, in some ways, Steve was the boss, and that's just not going to work out on the PGA Tour forever. And so I think that, that Steve played a, a huge part in Rich's development. He, he helped Rich believe in himself and believe he was good enough to win. And then Rich kind of outgrew him, and he had to, he had to, he had to go out on his own and, and make his way on tour, which, which he did. And uh, so it is a shame. And they'd, they'd always talked about getting back together at some point, even if it's just for one week, and they just never made it happen for a variety of reasons. But um, there was there was a, a deep friendship there. There was there was a kinship. Um, there was there was a unique bond. But it was it was more on on a human level than on a, a player caddy. Um, I I think one of the things that was most striking for me in rereading the book, you've said obviously the late Steve Duplantis. He was tragically killed in 2008 at the age of 35, actually out at Torrey Pines. And you can kind of pick up on, obviously burn the candle on both ends. And it seemed like a little bit of a tortured character, uh, a bit self-destructive. I'm just curious how that news hits you and, and what your lasting memories are of Steve. Yeah, that it, it's one of those things where when you look back, everyone can see it coming. But the thing about Steve, and it's much like John Daly, uh, and they were they were pals, is that Steve was really a sweet person. There was there was a really soft side to him, and he, he was he was a good guy, and he had a good heart. And the tension in his life was he had married the wrong woman. You know, this this, this stripper he met and married under a under a coconut tree in their bathing suits, married by a notary after a three week courtship. Who, who could have ever guessed this wasn't going to work out long term? Um, but they had a daughter together, and Steve basically was the only caretaker. And so he's he's trying to travel the world and have fun, have this high pressure, unstable job, and also take care of his daughter. And um, he was a, he really was a dedicated dad, even though he was a total screw up. And um, that was sort of his redeeming quality, and it was it was also the source of what made his life so difficult. Was uh, if he was just a single guy with no attachments, he could have he could have been wild and crazy, but he was still wild and crazy, but then he would have to plug back into his family life. And so, yeah, that, you know, after, after he died, I, I got the coroner's report and, you know, his blood alcohol level that night was 0.21. You know, he, he was just stumbling home from the bars in Del Mar, California. And I went to the exact scene where the, where the, where the accident happened. And it's this two tier roadway and there's this grass median and in between it at about a 45 degree angle. And he just, uh, he just must have just slipped and fallen on the, the median right into oncoming traffic. He was hit by a taxi driver and died at the scene. And it is tragic because he was such a young guy. And 
course, he left behind uh, his daughter, Sierra. And um, it's interesting because, you know, I, I knew Sierra when she was four and five years old. You know, I spent a lot of time at Steve's house and she was there and um, I'd see her on the road. And she was she was a real ray of sunshine, just a beautiful little girl who was always happy. And despite the um, kind of chaos around her, just, just seemed like, like a great kid. And fast forward, you know, probably 12 or 13 years. And there was a story in SI about, I don't know if you remember Ray Carruth. He was the, the receiver for the Panthers who tried to have his, his pregnant wife killed and wound up having the baby, but he had brain damage. It was a long story in SI, and it was really heart-wrenching about this kid. And for some reason, I thought about Sierra, like, and I, I, I wondered how she was doing. And I found her on social media, and we kind of began a, court, uh, you know, a, a correspondence. And she knew about the book. She hadn't read it, but she was she was intrigued, and she knew that I knew her dad in, in a way that, that she never would. And and so we kind of kept in touch. And just a couple of years ago, I went to visit her at, at Clemson. She was just finishing up as an undergrad, and we, we spent a day together. And what an incredible person she turned out to be. Um, she's now in law school. She was a great student. She, she was president of her sorority. She did internships with her local senators. Just highly motivated, extremely intelligent, and it's really kind of a, a a nice postscript. And what put her through college was the college was the savings account that was that was kind of started in, in Steve's memory. Because after he died, the tour community kind of rallied and, and set up this college fund for Sierra. A lot of players contributed, including Jim Furyk and Rich Beam and others. And enough money poured in that, that Sierra was able to go through four years at Clemson and now law school. Um, so you don't want to make too much of it, but Steve always wanted to give his daughter a better life. And it's through his tragic death that that was made possible. So it's really a, a kind of a heart-wrenching thing. And, you know, Sierra is, is kind of his legacy and, and she's a great kid. And of course, you'd be massively proud of her. Uh, and it was fun to kind of relive some of those days because she filled in some of the blanks for me. Um, after the book came out, Steve and I would keep in touch and he loved for me to I'd take him out to dinner with my corporate Amex. He'd always get like a 40-ounce steak and lobster tail. It'd be like a $500 dinner. I mean, that was his favorite thing in the world. And we did a lot of those dinners. But, you know, of course, Sierra knew a lot of stuff that had, had happened in the in the years that followed. So I, I kind of filled her in on, on some things, too. So it was neat for us to connect that way. Well, I really appreciate I, I one, like you said, it's it's very heart wrenching, but I'm I'm really glad to hear about Sierra and uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Hey everybody, real quick, Randy here. We gotta pay the bills, so I wanna tell you about Holderness and Born. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode we've been working with them now, going on three years, and we could not be happier with that relationship. Uh, Holderness and Born, they just the utmost quality in their product. I'm actually sitting here recording right now. I'm wearing uh, their cotton polo, a white and coral colored shirt. It's got a great tailored fit. Somebody my size, I appreciate it. fits really nicely, but just really high performance premium material. Uh, you'll see that not only in their cotton stuff, but, but also their performance polos. We carry a number of them in our shop, of course. The white and regal and Amparo and white are two of my absolute favorites. I wear the white and regal all the time uh, going out to dinner it makes me feel sophisticated a little bit of purple in the wardrobe which uh, i'm sorely lacking if you're really lucky they're already in your favorite golf shop where you are and if they're not i would highly highly encourage you to talk to the pro or whoever is in charge of sourcing the merchandise in that shop tell them about holderness and born thanks again to holderness and born and now back to my conversation with alan chipnuck 
My next question is pretty simple. And it's like, could this could this book be written today? Um, and a two-parter, has there been anybody in the last 20 years coming onto the tour that, that would have caught your interest and attention like Rich Beam did? Yeah, it, it's hard to think of, of a character. You, you could write a, an interesting biography of a tour player, but you probably would not, well, I know you would not have the same magic chemistry with a caddy and have the caddy be as interesting, but it, it's really an, an issue of access. Um, you know, I remember going to Ritz and just saying, I want to do this book. He's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. It was that easy. There was no agent. There was no negotiation. Just like, yeah, same thing with, with, with Stevie. He's like, sure, come on down. We'll play some golf and, you know, I'll take you to uh, the Mons Venus in Tampa. We'll meet some of the girls. You know, it was like, it was just so, it was so simple. It was just, it was just a different time. I mean, now even the rookies out here, they have an entourage with their, their trainer and their, their nutritionist and their agent and their publicist and, it's like they they roll about six deep and it, you know neither of those guys had anything like that and so the intimacy that's in the book was was because I, I was able to just spend so much time with them and and they were they were so open it's hard to imagine any player ever doing granting that kind of access i mean there there's there's some big personalities like would would you want to read a, a Rory Sabatini biography that would be fun you, you know you, we we could make a list of guys that we would we would want to to go deep on but i'm not sure they'd have the secondary characters to sustain 70 or 80,000 words, you know, I mean, like, so Rich, he had this whole scene in El Paso. Where I went, I went back and he had all these sponsors and these good old boys at the club. And they were, they were really great fun and added a lot to the book. His father was so interesting. I mean, Larry Beam is one of the sort of unsung heroes of the book. Cause he's just so wise and he's seen a lot of stuff. Of course you have, you have Steve's life. You have the, all the women and all the craziness around him, but then you also have, you know, Sierra kind of gives the book its heartbeat. And, you know, it's hard to find that many really interesting protagonists uh, for, for one tale. So I'm not sure there's there's another book like this out there. I'd like to find it. I've kind of flirted with the idea, but it's just a different era on tour. You know, it, it, so much has changed. And this was before social media. This is this was before. I mean, I hadn't, I didn't join Twitter for another 10 years after this book came out. I mean, it's just, it's funny when you read the money, you know, this was the beginning, the the, the Tiger contract had just kicked in and everyone was losing their mind how big the money was. And it's quaint, you know, the winner's check is like $450,000. And, you know, I'm here at the U.S. Open, someone's going to win $2 million. And it's just very few guys are flying in private jets. So it was, it's just the tour has, has changed and none of those changes lend itself to the kind of book I'd want to write putting words into your mouth or putting thoughts in your head, it, it seems like the tour has got to be a little less fun these days than it used to be, at least covering it week to week, uh, stop to stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a word, yeah. It, 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 the, the landscape has changed so much. I mean, it was just, back then the written word was important. Like, it was, there was value to it and it was venerated and there was so much written about golf all the time. Golf world was, was a going concern. That was, that was in some ways the Bible of the game. It's now extinct. Golf Week is a lie. They only publish once a month, and they're not really a, a regular presence. Golf Digest may get reinvigorated here with a sale to Discovery. But you think about the giants that were on that masthead at Golf Digest. They had Jenkins and Jaime Diaz and Tom Callahan, Dave Kindred. I mean, these are a Hall of Fame talents. They're all, you know, none of them write for that magazine anymore. Of course, Jenkins is, has joined Steve Duplantis and golf heaven but um the others have, have just moved on and so it was it was just such a different era you know to be a reporter now 
the players basically have no use for for what what we do. Like they they think they can speak to the fans through social media posts and and ad campaigns from their corporate partners. And it's very shallow. It's very trifling. But they have control over it. And so control is very important to these guys. And they don't control the writers. And so they they've kind of in a lot of ways just have circumvented the whole process. I understand it from their perspective, but I think it's a bummer for the fans who are losing out on rich storytelling in a lot of ways and, and that intimacy and, you know, even a podcast and, and of course, no laying up the state of the art for, for golf podcasts. It's a little two dimensional. You're just sitting in, in a room talking I and mean, you do these old magazine stories where you could go and, and you know, embed in their lives for a good period of time and, and meet all the other people and see how they live. And, um, you know, that there's just a richness there that, that is um, a little different. So, so it's, the, the media landscape has changed. The tour landscape has changed, and all of it, in some ways, has made the players more remote and harder to to get to know. And, and that's not a good thing for fans or, uh, or writers, of course. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I I really was not meaning to to turn this to you know a discussion of what we do, or, or certainly not looking for any uh, compliments. But I, I think you're right, and I think that's our whole mission and a lot of the drive that that we have, at least towards tour players is it's it's not really interesting um or it had gotten a lot less interesting just over time and so it's like well how can we try to play a role in you know bringing some of these stories even if you know like you said that it's maybe not as full as as a total book or you know a magazine essay um yeah, that that's that's kind of the driving mission behind what we try to do is, you know, a lot of these guys are more interesting than they'll let on. And, and how how can we discover that and share that? So so I was just going to say, I hope the tour and, and the players realize this because, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking and talking. It's it just it, it feels like a weird time for golf. And, and, you know, especially when Tiger ages out and isn't drawing fans and interest it's going to be really interesting what happens uh, for, for these guys yeah no i mean you guys do a fantastic job of, of bringing the players to life and um, i'm jealous of how good your videos are and and the other things you do but it's like a, a four or five minute video is just a different experience than a three thousand or four thousand word story it, neither one is better or worse it's just different and it's it, um, but but to do to really do the um in-depth interviews and really get to know someone it just takes a lot of time and these guys are, are loath to uh to give up that time easily and now of course they all want to monetize it uh with discovery coming in and, and paying people and rory's deal with with golf channel and um it's like i think they want to get paid to open their mouth now and that, that's definitely a a disconcerting trend and to bring it back to the book i mean different there's different ways to do a book and if you're writing and if you're the co-writer where you're going to the you know, as told to kind of thing, then you're going to share in the money and the player's going to have control of the product. And there's plenty of those books come out and they can be interesting, but it's, again, you're getting into issues of, it gets a little sterile, right? It's like when you see that Notorious B.I.G.'s mom is the executive producer of the biography, right? It's, it's going to have a certain tone. And if you go, if you go rogue, like I did, and, you know, I, I told Rich and I told Steve, like, this, this, is, this can't be a partnership if, because I can't, I can't give you control of this book. That's just not how it, it's going to happen. And they grudgingly accepted that. So that's why it was as raw and it, as real as it could be. If, if I went to a player now and said, hey, I'd like to interview you for 
20 to 30 hours. I want to travel with you. I want to have meals. I want to play rounds of golf. I want to talk to every person you've ever met, go to your hometown, uh, hang out with your family. And there's no money in it for you, but it's a chance to have your story told. Like that's not an attractive pitch to them. And I understand that. And that's, it, that's why it's so hard to do these books because someone has to want their story told. You know, Rich was such an unknown and he was just kind of, as I said, winging it. He's like, yeah, that sounds cool. But um, it takes a very specific personality to have very specific circumstances. And, you know, like when, when Feinstein did a Good Walk Spoil or any of those those books, he's just he's a reporter. He's telling a story. There's there's nothing in it for the players other than they like to have their story told. But as successful as he's been, he hasn't done a tour book in a really long time. And I think there's because he, he's not going to get that access. He's not going to get that time. And um, so Shane Ryan wrote wrote a good a, a really good book, Slaying the Tiger. I think that's going on four years ago now. There's a dearth of tour books that have come out. Um, there's there's a lot of books about golf. There's people writing biographies like the recent Tiger Tiger Woods. That was that was a really good book. But um, again, it, it didn't have the intimacy. You know, they were they they collected everything that was out there and they, they advanced some things, but they never got Tiger. You know, he remained elusive to the bitter end. And so it's it's a sad thing for the game that. Um, the players don't want to give, they don't want to give of themselves. And one of the reasons that Jack and Arnie and guys like that are so revered is because we've been able to tell their stories so effectively. I mean, how many writers have, have beat a path to La Trobe and sat in Arnie's living room and heard all the stories from him? They've gone down to South Florida and Jack's given them time. And, you know, those guys are a different era where the written word was powerful and they, they they had a respect and, and maybe an admiration for the storytellers and, and they were willing to share, but that has changed dramatically. And so I fear that there's not going to be too many good tour books going forward because it's discouraging as a writer to embark on down that road, knowing how many doors are going to be closed. Yeah. And I think uh, just two thoughts to, to kind of follow up on that is I, I think you're exactly right in that I, Jack and Arnie and, and some, it, it's almost like they were playing the long game, right? They, Give, give up a little time and, and perhaps money in the short term. And, and I think it pays off uh, over the long haul. And then I was just going to say, to follow up on kind of what I was talking about earlier, and, and what you said, there's going to be a lack of books about tour players. It's, it's concerning because it's, you know, these guys aren't going to be humanized. They're not going to be relatable. And I, I think that's where the tour is going to run into issues someday if, if, if that continues to be the case. So. Yeah. I mean, look at who—who who is the most, the second biggest star of the last quarter century? I mean, it's Phil Mickelson. There's never been a book about Phil, and I flirted with the idea, and I've had publishers approach me. I I talked to Phil, and he's just—he's not interested. He doesn't want his story told. I mean, clearly the guy has some secrets, right? They leak out every now and then in news breaks, and the last thing in the world he wants is someone sniffing around in his life. I may get do it, but it's going to be a write around. You might get—you might get. Phil in the driving range. You might you might get him to, to sit down with you for an hour in a conference room at a Marriott in Florida. I mean, you can have his voice in there, but you're never going to get Phil. Of course, there's been a lot of books about Tiger, and the most interesting ones had access, but it was to Earl, or you know, they had, there was a particular take, but no one's ever really gotten Tiger. And and who else? I mean, is anyone going to want to write 500 words about Jordan Spieth or Brooks Kepka or Dustin Johnson? I mean, they're compelling golfers. I love to watch him play, but um, what you said about the long game with Jack and with Arnold was really interesting because they felt like building their brand, it, that's become a cliche, but they just instinctively understood. Like They wanted people to know them, 
and to like them. And they wanted them to understand them and to share their thoughts on, on their, their triumphs and their tragedies. And, and by doing that, it made them such compelling figures that, yeah, they, they missed out on it, the percentage of a small book advance, but it, it, it elevated them. And, and so then they, you know, Arnold Palmer was making $25 million in endorsements into his 80s. It was because people were so invested in his life and the myth-making was largely done by typists. And, and so they were playing the long game. They understood that they were in some ways, they'd had, they had public lives and their story should be told in a compelling way. And so they, op- they opened their lives to, to writers and the, the modern player is never going to do that. And we're all much poorer for it as, as golf fans. Um, so it, it is, it's bittersweet. I mean, it, I would, I would love to write another book like Bud Sweat and Tease, but uh, it's, I, I, I feel like it's going to, it's going to have to be a totally different kind of book. You know, there's, there's gotta be some, find some different side doors, maybe somewhere out there. There's, there's a, there's a player, uh, you know, there's a guy like barn rat, like he doesn't care. I can fly to Thailand and we can drive around his Lamborghini. Like um, there's, there's players who are still willing to, to do that sort of fun stuff, but can they carry, you know, 300 pages that's that's really the question yeah well and i thought to to plug one of your pieces from earlier this year that the story you did on uh the shrimp de jesus rodriguez yeah jose de jesus rodriguez i mean that that was that was the most humanizing um interesting look at a player that i've encountered in a very long time uh so so to your point yeah there are stories out there it's just i'm i'm hopeful like you that that good writers can can gain access to them. Well, in that scenario, I mean, I spent two days with Cameron down in Mexico, and you know, I was sitting with his mom eating her homemade tortillas, and we were at the club and where he grew up playing, and spent time with his brother, and went to Cameron's house, and his story is incredible. Anyone could have have written it in a compelling way, but it was the access and intimacy that made that story. So yeah, it's it's has, and I, I will say I've had like three different you know, Hollywood types have reached out to me and I'm, I'm working with one of them to try and turn it into like a, maybe a six or eight episode limited series and to really tell a story in a, in a different way. I think it could be great. And I'm, I'm super excited about that project. And, but if you're not talking about an American golf fan. It gets harder to sell it to a Simon and Schuster or someone like that. And so more and more, I gravitate towards the, the foreign born players because they still want their story told. And the answer is yes. You know, can I come and hang out with you? Yes. Can can I meet everyone in your life? Yes. And um, so that, that makes it more fun to do. But the Americans, unfortunately, um, the social media generation and with all the, uh, the handlers around them, it's, it's very hard for them to say yes. And um, So I'm always on the lookout for those kind of stories. And you know, maybe in the case of Cameron, it'll turn into something bigger. It'll be a cool way to do some, some golf storytelling that will reach a larger audience. So uh, it's out there, but it, it's hard to find for sure. Yeah, and I think probably this is where golf's uh, homogeneity comes into play a little bit too, at least as far as the American golfers. I want to get you out with uh, two more questions, Please. if you don't mind. I, it, and you've mentioned some of the projects you're working on now. I'm wondering if there's any books uh, in the works or if there's anything you can share with, with potential books. Yeah, in the short term, I'm really focused on this Cameron project. And um, I think I, I have high hopes for that. I'm actually, I am working on a, um, another book. It, I, I met this person through golf. It's, uh, it's a guy who uh, I, I just became friends with. Uh, he, he has Monterey Peninsula roots. And um, his wife was actually on United 93. And I'm helping him kind of write his memoirs. And it's, 
really compelling story of heartbreak and then and trying to put your life back together. His name's Jack. He's uh, He's been to hell and back, and he kind of felt like the only way he can make sense of this tragedy in his life is to help other people with, with all this knowledge that he's, he's learned, I mean, through PTSD counseling and, and everything else. And so it's a biography of, of this couple. It's it's a political study of what happened around the plane. It's uh, have self-help elements for, you know, because we all have our own tragedies. That, that one is at a magnitude it's hard to comprehend, but everyone loses a family member through cancer or a car accident or whatever it may be. And, and you know, Jack had told me he sees, these, he sees these stories and he knows what's he knows exactly what these people are going to go through for the next X number of years. And he would like, like to be able to give something back. So we spent a lot of time talking. I need to, I need to start typing that up soon as well. But uh, golf wise, uh, I'm really focused, you know, primarily on writing stories for golf magazine right now, which, uh, which I love doing and, and uh, covering them, you know, covering the majors for golf.com. So I would, I would like to write another, another golf book. I'm, I'm just biding my time, I guess is the answer. Okay. Well, I can't wait to, uh, hopefully in the next couple of years, this memoir comes out. That sounds really, really fascinating. Uh, all right. Last question. Do you have any time to read? What do you, what do you like to read? Are you reading anything right now? Yeah, it's, it's a little depressing. You know, I have, I have four kids and I'm, I'm grinding. I'm probably working harder than I ever have, uh, on my day job. And, these other little projects often when I get into bed, I just want to close my eyes. Like what used to be my reading time. I can't stay awake and same on airplanes. I, I used to devour novels when I was traveling from work and now I just sleep. It's pathetic, but um, it's funny. I was just staying at this swanky hotel down in LA when I, I went, went down to meet some of these Cameroon people and they had the handmaid's tale. It was like, if you want to, if you want to keep this book, we'll add $16 to your room bill. I started reading it and I was totally riveted. So like halfway through that and I need to, um, now of course I have to watch the show. Um, I, I just did a big story in the July issue on Seve Ballesteros and it's the 40th anniversary of his, his breakthrough with the open championship. And so I read a couple of Seve biographies and actually the, the autobiography that he did is, is a fascinating document because it's very raw. It was, it was published overseas. And so, um, it's just of a certain time and place uh, and of his, his Sevy was a candid guy. So that, that was a fun little book. Um, trying to think what's on my bedside table. Uh, well, I've been, I've been re- actually reading a lot of nine 11 stuff. Um, just, to, there's obviously a lot has been written about that. And there's a book called among the heroes, which focuses on, uh, flight 93. And that, that's a really powerful book that, that I just finished. Um, I would, I'm, I'm trying to think the last golf book. Oh, I've been rereading Golf in the Kingdom because I'm, I'm working on a feature about Michael Murphy, the, um, the esteemed author. You know, that, that book is going on half a century in print. And I had lunch with Michael Murphy down at Esalen and, and Big Sur. And what a character. And in fact, he said his only regret in life is that he never got to see Tiger Woods play in person. So uh, I'm bringing him out for the first round of the U.S. Open. He's going to be my guest. We're going to go inside the ropes. going to finally see Tiger. And so rereading Golf in the Kingdom, you know, I, I read it in the 90s and it didn't really speak to me. You know, it's a very love it or hate it kind of book. But as I've gone back now, I've, it's just such a delight. And the writing is so graceful and the thoughts about the larger meaning of the game and, and how it connects us all. I've, I've really loved it. So if you've been scared of Golf in the Kingdom or if, if you couldn't get through the first few chapters, I, I would encourage people to pick that up. because There's really so much there. So I guess that's that's the current reading list. What, what, what are you into these days, Randy? Um, I've been on a big novel kick. 
I, I've been uh, so <laughs> so. I read a, a few Walker Percy okay. novels, The Moviegoer and The Last Gentleman, and that was in preparation. I went over; it was my first literary festival over in uh, St. Francisville, Louisiana. They have a Walker Percy weekend, which is essentially a, a gathering of a lot of Walker Percy fans, and they put on this full day and a half of panel discussions and book clubs and it's all capped by a big uh, crawfish boil so i went over there a couple weeks ago and had the time of my life it was it was awesome that is the nerdiest slash coolest thing i've ever heard in my <laughs> yeah. life that is so great yeah well a lot of my decisions now in life i i usually ask myself you know is this something michael bamberger would do and and if it's if i think the answer is yes then i try to do I mean, it he's he's Bamberger's he's a guy he's a guiding light for many of us. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and I actually just finished the the last book I just finished is another novel. And you know what's funny? It it came by a way of recommendation from Josh Carp, who I interviewed in the same setting for one of his golf books, but it it's a book called The Late George Apley by an author called JP Marquand. And he's kind of been lost to, to time a little bit. He was he was a very notorious author in the 1930s. And the late George Apley is, uh, it's a novel, but it's written in the style of a, of a memoir and, and a biographer. And it, it chronicles this high society Boston uh, elite from the time of birth, eventually through the time of his death. And, and it's a little bit, it, it's the perfect... Uh, amount of cheekiness where it, it, it kind of pokes fun at a lot of the customs and traditions and uh, thoughts of, you know, maybe that type of person, but in a very subtle and um, dry way. So I, I really enjoyed that book. I, I, you're, I love your eclectic taste. I'm, I'm jealous. I, I, I gravitate towards more obvious selections i'm, I'm going to seek those out that, that sounds like some good stuff yeah well i i always i you know asking people what they're reading is is always my favorite question so i, I appreciate the the thoughtfulness and the breadth of your answer you, you've given me a, a couple and i can't wait to read that feature on michael murphy it's a book i read uh gosh it's been 10 to 12 years ago now and and since then i've i've gone to scotland for the first time and you've you've convinced me while I was listening to you. I need to reread that book. So you've given me some motivation as well. I appreciate that. You'll get so much more out of it, especially having been over there now. The first time I read it, I was on the plane heading to Scotland for the first time, my first trip. That was like '97. And uh, so yeah, it's it does that trip changes your perspective on golf, and uh, I think you'll, you'll this book will hit you a little differently this time around. Yeah. Uh, well. Alan, I will let you go. All right, well, th this was great fun. Thanks for having me. All right, yep, see ya. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who me?